This program is supported by Pharmacyclics, an AbV company, and Janssen Biotech, Inc. I'm not the traditional caregiver. You know, I didn't go to doctor's appointments. I still can't pronounce the words, and I don't know all the medical part of it. That caregiving role came as, like, providing any support that, like, my dad needed. Like, whether that would be going to doctors with him. And he'd like me to go just because he's also like, you know the lingo better. Welcome to Caregiver Life Hacks CLL Edition. In our first episode, we talked about the delicate nature of telling children difficult news. But what if those children are in their teens? Or what if they're older and have children of their own? Is there a right age or a right time? Does it ever get any easier? I'm Alura Nanos, your host for this series. Here in our final episode, we talk to two women who share their inspiring stories of caring for their parents with CLL. Michelle Stonis is a mom of three and a history professor at Glendale Community College in California. Michelle's mom didn't tell her that she had cancer until it was already in an advanced stage. While Michelle was left out of a big part of her mom's cancer process, she was able to provide an occasional escape and emotional support. Mari Hoffman was just 16 years old when her dad told her that he had CLL. Her emerging interest in science was a natural entry point for caregiving. She quickly became her dad's advocate and number one research partner. In this episode, we continue to expand what caregiving looks like as we examine the emotional side, the mental load, and the educational advocacy that's needed to sort through all the information that comes with a cancer diagnosis. Now, a recent graduate of UC Davis and wise beyond her 22 years, Mari shared with us how her dad's CLL diagnosis launched her studies in genetics and genomics. Kind of a lot of my interest in biology and like research kind of started with my dad's diagnosis in 2016. Then I was a junior in high school. And had you always been sort of a science kid or was that in and of itself? Yeah, I definitely was always interested in science and definitely more interested in biology. So I kind of had that kind of going for me, but I definitely like started being interested in like working in research. And so my dad joined a clinical trial in 2017. So I was, I went with him to like most of his like doctor's appointments and a lot of his support groups who was part of CLL society. So I feel like I definitely got a lot of exposure to kind of like different things in CLL and different things in like oncology research, cancer research. So I definitely was like, whoa, this is super cool. And I want to be working on this. But I definitely like realized that a lot of my inspiration started from my dad and kind of helping him through all the lingo and learning about all these things together. Mari, I just think it's really wonderful that you jumped in and engaged in that way with your dad and his diagnosis. Michelle, I know that you recently lost your mom to CLL. Can you tell us about your journey and when you found out about your mom's diagnosis? My mom did not disclose to us Uh, my brother and myself, that she had CLL until she entered treatment. I was not my mom's day-to-day caregiver. We were emotionally close, but she did not, in her words, quote, want to be a burden, which was not my projection onto her. But I think one of my mindsets throughout the whole time is that my mom was a person before she was a mom. And she's entitled to the same amount of privacy and dignity and life choices that I am. You know, Michelle, and in other episodes, we talked to parents who had to tell their children that one of the parents had CLL. And they described it, as I would expect, as, you know, the most heartbreaking, most difficult thing they've ever done to share a diagnosis 
with their child. And as a mom yourself, I'm sure you can understand that your mom didn't want to do that and wanted to protect you from it. A lot of those years are kind of a blur because I had little kids and I actually worked for my mom for five years. So the irony is I was working with my mom every day while she had CLL and was like, oh, I just don't feel good. Or I'm like, gosh, she catches a lot of colds. Like what's going on? Did you ever suspect she had cancer? No, I had no clue. And when you found out, did you feel really guilty for not having known that whole time? Or did you did you sort of get it? No, I didn't. I think I, I felt surprised. And it's kind of one of those surreal moments where you think, oh, is this the beginning of something or the end of something else? And to be honest, I remember the restaurant it happened in and we were in a booth. I remember where we all sat, my brother and I, and my mom. I know I cried, but I couldn't take you back to that moment. It was just kind of like everything became like the, you know, um, peanuts teacher, blah, blah, blah. And I just heard cancer. And my mom was very reassuring that, you know, CLL, you know, it can be slow progressing, that there's so many treatments and things like that. And I made a commitment in that moment to not Google. And I think that might be something different where Mari is kind of coming in with all of this information. So whether her dad's telling her or not, she understands and can probably read these research reports were for me, I just took my mom at her word. And um, I chose not to pry. I would ask my mom about her emotional state. But I wouldn't ask like, well, why are you switching from this medicine to this? My mom was really proud of herself that when she went to the doctor, they often asked if she was a nurse. Oh, that is a compliment. Right. And so it's not a surprise that I went into like research and teaching because that's my mom and me. I had confidence in my mom's ability to do her own thinking and research. And so I really let that be her journey, which is why when she said, I'm done, there's no other treatments at the end of this. I didn't go Google to see, well, should she take one more shot? Like she's been in charge this whole time. And I'm not going to deprive her of that dignity and put a wedge between us because as my mom told me when I was little, I'm not the boss of her. (laughs) I, I I think I can relate to that part. <laughs> That's an amazing story, really. I want to just shift to Mari. Tell me about your dad's diagnosis and what it meant for you in that in that immediate time following it. Yeah, actually, I feel like even though our stories are pretty different, there I definitely see a lot of similarities. I mean, CLL is a very like slow progressing cancer, so I remember when my dad told me that too, and like being told he has cancer, but we're kind of like not doing anything about it. Or like, what what does that mean? I remember we were like just on a hike in our canyon and just like kind of casually told us like we weren't sitting down or anything. We were just like hiking. and <laughs> But like we were all kind of like, oh, by the way, I have leukemia. It was kind of like also kids like there's something we need to tell you. Like, I mean, we were kind of shocked, but he was like calm that it was kind of like confusing. But in that moment, we we're kind of like okay, what, what, what do we do? But he was, there was nothing to do. He was put on watch and wait. But then he really started getting connected. He found CLL Society, who has been so helpful to him this whole time. One of his coping mechanisms was kind of, okay, I need to learn all this. I want to get educated. Like he would be Googling all the time. I would be Googling with him. So we kind of like took that on together. I think only six months of watch and wait passed. And they're like, all right, you need to start chemo. This is what we should do. And he was like, Nobody talked about doing that. Like I was told, watch and wait and whatever. And then he brought up, oh, don't we need to check my genetics? And the doctor didn't even do that before saying, oh, let's start chemo. And that, I think, was his first crucial moment of being like, 
I really need to take action and like be educated myself and kind of work with my doctors just as much as they would work with me. My mom learned very early that she needed to advocate for herself. Her doctor that she had had for decades said, oh, I noticed it. I just didn't want to alarm you before. So, you know, I'm so glad you you raised that point about self-advocacy, Michelle. Mari actually wrote an article about how important it is for patients to self-advocate. And I read it and I thought it was really wonderful and really heartfelt and really informative. Mari, tell us just a little bit about the point of that article, why you wrote it, what it's about. So, I mean, the article is called Taking the Driver's Seat in Your Diagnosis. And basically the inspiration was it was honestly just watching my dad go through this journey and like really kind of changing my perspective of like how our like medical system is. And and it's it's not all bad. It's just there's a lot of individual part that kind of can dictate a lot of your journey, which you kind of grow up thinking like, oh, they're the doctor, like they must know everything, like just whatever they say, but, and which obviously they are very qualified to do so, but it's definitely really important to make sure that your doctors are informed and the latest research of what CLL is about and kind of what drugs you're on, just kind of being the advocate for yourself. So one of the things that I've heard from other CLL caregivers is um, very much what both of you have said, which is sort of not to treat your doctor like one particular doctor is the savior of all things. And rather that the medical field, medical experts, clinical trials, all of it is just a, a large web that requires navigation and expertise. My dad will always say like the best doctors will want you to get a second opinion and will want you to kind of like reach out to other people because they want you to be able to get other answers and kind of see how that matches up and stuff. So I think another hurdle we need to consider, though, is people listening might be thinking, okay, I'm going to put together this amazing team of doctors is the resources that it takes to do so. Um, You might need to move to be in a bigger city where there is a regional cancer center. We're really lucky in Southern California. We're by City of Hope, but not everyone is. And not everyone has insurance in this country or is able to go out and network. I think it's really great to share this information. But if my mom didn't have the money and didn't work for herself and, you know, didn't have people that could step in and help with, you know, caretaking at home and, you know, buying groceries and things like that while she's away, then she wouldn't have been able to do that. In fact, I don't know. Sorry, mom. I don't know if she's going to get mad that I shared this, but not everyone's going to be really supportive when you share your diagnosis. My mom had been recently married to her second husband and he said, I didn't sign up for this. And he divorced her. Wow. It was such like a trauma on top of trauma. And so I can see, Mari, why your dad might tell you on a hike when you're in a special close relationship, it's just something that you're sharing. It doesn't need to be, you know, shouted from the rooftops to everyone. My mom was very private, especially with work, you know, worried about if clients were going to leave her business or if, you know, people were going to support the decisions she was making within our family. So I think there's a lot of things to consider as we talk about these great resources. And that's one reason why I think ahead. My mom had a lot of things set up ahead of time for worst case scenarios that really made a difference in her life. I really like what Michelle brought up because I'm I'm so grateful and thankful that we were honestly also emotionally wanting to put all this energy in. A lot of people also don't want to like have that involvement with it, you know, and that's also very fair. It's like another full-time job trying to educate yourself and dealing with all this. So 
not everybody has the time to do that. And it's and, and it can be like kind of a hard cycle where it's like you're you always feel like there's more you can do. Well, in addition to resources, we have to think about the way people cope with tragedy and with illness. Right. So my mom and your dad's first inclination with something in their life that was out of control was to try and control it. Right. I will join a support group. I will learn as much as I can. I will take control of my diet. I will do these, find the best doctors. I will question my doctors. Not everyone runs towards tragedy and illness. Not everyone wants to face things head on. So here's what I hear as an outsider that you both have in common. You know, both of your parents with CLL, they were there. It sounds like they were their own primary advocates, which we know is a really important component of treatment, which means that neither of you were their primary advocates. I'm curious, does the label caregiver resonate with you in terms of describing what you did for your mom? Yes and no. So when I was first asked about being on this podcast, I kind of tried to talk them out of it, that I'm not the traditional caregiver. You know, I didn't go to doctor's appointments. I still can't pronounce the words and I don't know all the medical part of it. But the more I started exploring that illness isn't just about the medical aspect. There's so many other aspects to loving someone and taking care of them and supporting them, right? Supporting their mental headspace, taking things off their plate so they can focus on the advocacy they need to do for themselves. Then I would describe myself as a caregiver. You know, it's interesting. I know because I have two children also, it's like a symphony, you know, like You need everyone's part. If you're a a child, even an adult child listening to remember that there's ways that you receive love and the ways that you give love. It doesn't have to look like changing diapers or filling prescriptions. How are you taking care of that person in a way that they receive? I think that that is such a critical point that it's not necessarily what you want to do or even what the world seems to value, but rather what that specific person would value most and what you are uniquely suited to do in that person's life. Mari, you know, I'm hearing this amazing story of what sounds very much to me like a partnership with your dad, a partnership in information and in researching and in attacking this disease from a scientific standpoint. Do you think of yourself as a caregiver? Do you think of that as caregiving? Yeah, I feel like my answer is kind of similar to Michelle. Like in the beginning when this podcast was started and I was asked to like interview with it, I was like, huh, I like never really thought of myself as a caregiver. That caregiving role came as like providing any support that like my dad needed, like whether that would be going to doctors with him. And he'd like me to go just because he's also like, you know, the lingo better. And then we can take notes together. I'd like to jump in really quick because one of the similarities I see between Mari's story and mine is right there. We both kind of are resistant to identifying as caregiving, although I would put that title on Mari in a heartbeat because I'm not her, right? And so it's like an emotionally laden word. And something that came to mind is, right, to be really cautious if you're caregiving or you're controlling. That's a great point. I think there's an element of it that you might need to resist in you because if it's a person you just love so much and you hear, I don't want to go on that diet. I don't want to read about it. There's an element of like codependency where you can be like, well, fine, I'm going to buy all the stuff and I'm going to manage it. But what does that do to your connection and how that person wants to feel loved? Sure. 
We really do need to affirm the dignity and the self-validation that just because someone is sick, that that doesn't mean that they don't know the decisions for their one wild and crazy life. Like we're here to love them, but not to control them to get the outcome we want because we don't want to feel the other emotions that might come. You know, it's so interesting from my point of view, just kind of looking through the window into your lives just this little bit. Every caregiver that we've spoken to said that they're uncomfortable identifying as a caregiver, every single person. And they gave care in different ways to different people in their lives, but all of them did it selflessly. All of them did it with love and with energy. And all of them took on a tremendous burden for their sick loved one. And none of them were even remotely interested in identifying that way. It was it was very telling. Because you're kind of all thrown into it. I mean, nobody expects you're getting a cancer diagnosis. Everybody kind of feels like they don't know what they're doing until you kind of look back and you're like, oh, I kind of know more than I thought. So it's kind yeah. of, maybe you don't really ever recognize when you went into that role as a caregiver. If you had to look back at your pre-diagnosis self, what, what would you say? What would you say that you wish you had known in, in the beginning of that process? I guess kind of taking taking what you need emotionally as as a caregiver too so you can be there for someone else taking that time for yourself so you can better your time with whoever you're caregiving for is definitely really important. And what does that look like for you? What's necessary for you to kind of fill your own cup so that you can be in a position to to do all what sounds like a tremendous amount of work on behalf of your dad? Yeah, I feel like definitely like reaching out to your other family members who are also going through the same thing. And I thought it was very helpful to talk with everyone. I mean, my mom's also a social worker. So I think that was very helpful for all of us. And just knowing that it's okay that you don't have to like feel like you have control in everything all the time and kind of letting the situations evolve as they do. I would say still trying to live your normal life. As Michelle was saying, like not everything has to revolve around cancer. And I think that was also hard for us to feel like for my dad too. I feel like there's times where like all we would talk about is cancer, which I think was also coping for him. So I think it was definitely listening to what people want and like the more confident and comfortable they feel, I feel like that can only help in their in their journey. And it's like very helpful just having confidence and different mindsets and being comfortable about things. If you can just remember that every day is a gift. And so what does that look like for you? Like, I'm so thankful that the last outing before the holidays, before my mom passed, I really wanted to go to this tea and it was a suffrage tea, which is like totally up my alley of like history and tea. My mom and I've done so cool. Did you wear white? I did. And I wore my sash. I love it. Oh my gosh. With my mom. And yeah. And it was, and she wore white too. And what a great memory. uh, it was so fun. And we were in the garden and my mom had always, and I had always done tea. So this was very up our alley and we didn't know what was on the horizon. And I really wanted to go. And I thought about all my friends that I could take and thought, you know, I need to be intentional with my mom, but crap, I got to get a babysitter because my husband's working. And I remember coming home that day and we had such a good time and, oh, this is so sad, but she even had the pamphlet for the upcoming teas in her purse when she died. Oh. I mean, that's how like quick things went at the end. And so she just thanked me so much for taking her out. We just had such good uninterrupted kid time. But I remember coming home and going, wow, that cost me like over $100 just for the babysitter. 
And I didn't have that money, but I'm so glad that like in that moment, even not knowing what was ahead, that I just bit the bullet and did it. You know, that cheesy saying of like, you'll regret the things you don't do. So like make that cross country trip, call, even if you only have three minutes to talk and just tell the person, I only have three minutes, but I really wanted to talk to you because if you wait, like Mari said, until it fits into your life, it's not going to, people don't get cancer when it's convenient for you. That's such an amazing perspective. I need to know how you're able to do that and be intentional when you have three young kids. It's really hard to do that. I'm in the sandwich generation. My mom told me that, right? I'm taking care of older, but also taking care of younger. I'm always in my car. I call it Mubering, like mom (laughs) Ubering. Like I'm always somewhere for someone else. And yeah. So I guess I don't have that guilt because it wasn't for me either. I was caretaking my children. Right. In a way that that does have the effect of alleviating a little bit of guilt because it's not like you're not going shopping. Right. It's not like I said, oh, mom, I'm on this Caribbean vacation. I don't want it. That's a bummer, right? Like you already have a bunch of kids. Life's a shit show anyway. Like, so. Yes, exactly. I think there is something in that to say, do it to the level that you can so that later, whatever later is for you, that you have that sort of solace because it is meaningful. Right. It's like in sports where they say, leave it on the field, right? When someone passes away, you don't, that's not the time because it's done. Yeah. And so that chapter's closed. It almost humbles you a little bit when something little happens, it's really nothing, you know? And it it brings in that perspective that I do think is like, I really try to take with me in my everyday life and like kind of just being grateful for little simple things. And I feel like people who've gone through stuff like this could probably relate to that, that it kind of always brings that with you, which is something that I definitely appreciate. Michelle, I see Michelle nodding along and we're both moms and and I'm sure that that she agrees with me that we're looking at you, Mari, and saying, what an amazing thing to have a you know a young woman in her 20s already have that perspective. It's unfortunate that it came as a you know as a result of a serious illness, but despite how it was born, it, it is a wonderful gift to have that perspective. So while it is called caregiving, if you find a way to practice being intentional and appreciate the simple things, it can also be a way of receiving care. Michelle and Mari both found a deeper well of gratitude in their experiences with their parents. And like Michelle said, there are so many aspects to loving someone and taking care of them. You're not limited to the traditional ideas. You can find your unique pathway and then it can nurture both you and the person that you're caring for. For Mari, her unique form of caregiving was a pathway to her career. How do you balance the fact that you're at this precipice of beginning your career? It's one of the most exciting times in a young person's life. And you're balancing starting an intense career with being a caregiver of your dad who has CLL. So I think that a lot of this stuff is like very intertwined, which I think he also really finds is really awesome because, I mean, a lot of what I'm going to be doing can directly relate to him. So I think that's 
also what fuels like what I want to do. I really can't see myself doing any other career path kind of just because of everything. And I love what I'm going to be doing. So I'm very excited for that. It is weird thinking about our lives kind of before all of this, because I feel like so much is just integrated with like, my dad is vegan now. He like, has he loves green tea all these things and like on a lot of this stuff we do together like we both talk about we want to go to japan and do green tea tours and (laughs) love that as a family i feel like we've really appreciated all the time we've had together and honestly one of the silver linings of covid is like all of us were able to be home again so i definitely think that having that time together and kind of knowing how much we appreciate each other and want to be together is is something that we'll take with us. I'm moving to Boston for my job, which is kind of far. As Michelle was saying, like doing things now, prioritizing those things, it not just kind of thinking, oh, well, I'll always have that time. I'll always this because you never do really know. As a professor and a mom, Mari, I'm proud of you. And I hope you're really proud of yourself that it is totally normal to have something in your life shift you in a different direction, right? That's like floating on a river. That's great, but that you're not stifling your own self, right? You're not like, well, I have to live at home and I can't leave his side. Like you're still on your journey, but being the best daughter, the best research scientist, like what a gift. Your parents should be so proud of you because I just met you and I'm really proud of you. I feel the same way. (laughs) Thank you. To Google or not to Google? That's so often the dilemma that confronts us when we want immediate answers to our medical questions. For Mari and her dad, research was a way to connect and bond and be in the trenches together. Meanwhile, Michelle made a commitment to stay far away from the Google search engine. While it can be incredibly useful, the information superhighway has way too many detours. But as Michelle's mom's illness took a quick turn... She told us about how she finally turned to Google twice. What was interesting is when my mom was dying at the end, when I saw my mom, like two days, three days before she was going to go to Scripps, that's the first time I ever Googled CLL because I saw my mom. I knew she was dying. Like it didn't matter. I knew. I went home. I said, how do you know if someone with CLL is dying and, and what changed? And what was interesting is my husband, right, who has known her since he was 16 years old, was like, oh, well, she looked really not well last time. And she came through it. And I said, I don't remember any of that. When Michelle realized that this might be the end for her mom, she turned to Google again. This time she asked, what do you say to someone who's dying? And so I Googled, you know, because I just didn't know what to say or what to do. And I didn't want to step on her toes. And I came across this website and I took a screenshot of it. And when I went to visit my mom, I walked into Scripps Hospital, Mari, and um, she had actually told me not to come. It was like straight out of a movie because she told me not to come. She was fine. She's coming home the next day. And I was already scheduled to go down to San Diego with girlfriends for my 40th birthday. And I walk in and she has all the shades drawn and she's just in a private moment and not doing well. And I just lost it. And I, you know, we chatted a little bit and I'm like, I have to go to the bathroom, you know, in quotes. And I went to the bathroom and I looked at my phone. My mom's like, do you need to go? Like, you should go, go have fun. I'm like, no, no, no. Like I got things to say. And, um, we did it right then. And it was beautiful. We both cried. And so the things that are essential, if you want to, to say are, please forgive me. 
So whatever that is. And for me, it was a lot of childhood stuff. And, you know, I, I asked for forgiveness for all those appointments I didn't go to, the way I can't pronounce the Medicaid, anything I needed to ask forgiveness for. And she offered forgiveness to me and said, I forgive you. She then asked for my forgiveness for things. And so we're both, I'm like, you don't need to ask me about that, but it wasn't for me. It was for her, right? She needed to say, do you forgive me? And so um, I asked for her forgiveness. I told her I forgived her, which I totally did. Um, I said, I love you. And then I said, thank you. And I'm going to cry. But the, the fifth one is say goodbye. And I wasn't ready to say goodbye. So I didn't. I said goodbye later. But I think if you have the gift of getting to say those last words, someone doesn't die unexpectedly when they walk out the door, then so what if you did it four times? I have such peace because I heard my mom tell me she's proud of me. I don't need to to ask. I know my mom wasn't mad that I didn't call that one time. You know, when I walked out of that room, I gave her a hug and she said, I love you. I said, tell me one more time. And she said, I love you to the moon and back. And I just made that second time was so that I was really listening and not just doing the motion. And when I walked out of there in my leather jacket, looking a fool and the oncologist was like, you're going to need a drink after that, huh? And I was like, don't you know it? You weren't even in that room and you know. So I just did it in the moment and Google helped me. It was one of the only times Google's helped me and not stressed me out. Google to the rescue. We're never really prepared for the end of someone's life. It's not something that is taught. We aren't given any tools and we certainly don't have an abundance of grief resources in our culture. According to the website that Michelle found through Google from Crossroads Hospice and Palliative Care, the five essential things to say to someone who is dying are, please forgive me. I forgive you. Thank you. I love you. And goodbye. In that moment, it helped Michelle. And then Michelle helped Mari. I just don't know emotionally how I would kind of, I wouldn't allow my brain to kind of go to worst case scenario. So I guess I was wondering for you, Michelle, like, would you also kind of do that and kind of just take things as they come or kind of like, kind of really plan like if if they did pass or something, how you would deal with that? Like, I feel like I never really let myself go there, if that makes sense. But that's kind of- I never I let myself go there either. And this is the first person in my life that I'm emotionally connected to that has passed away. And then it's the most pinnacle person. So I had no concept about grief. I would say just to make sure that you are filling your own cup, whatever that looks like, and that you have that support system built around you. And just remember, if you're dimming the sadness, you're also dimming your joy. To the degree you feel your own sadness is the degree to which you can feel your own joy. So it's good practice. Not that you want to be in that space. You do not need to rehearse what would happen and try and picture it. You will be qualified and enabled to have the strength that you need in that moment. You don't need to rehearse it. But maybe you want to start some like supportive practices in your life now that even if it's 40 years from now, I don't know. I just sit here looking at you and I'm thinking, wow, in 20 years, the things that you might discover or be able to give back to the community is such a beautiful thing to make your life a gift. So I'm going to thank you in advance. (laughs) It's really neat. I, I think it's incredible. Thank you. Caregivers are truly gifts. 
they are wise, generous, thoughtful, and even funny. Over the course of this series, we've listened to a variety of different packages that caregiving comes in. It is typically a role that we don't choose or desire or one that we even feel qualified to do. But chances are pretty good that we will all be forced into this role at some point in our lives. So find your people, find your resources, and don't forget to take care of yourself along the way. Our caregiver life hack from this episode is to join a conversation and connect with those who are going through something similar. A brief chat can go a long way. This completes Caregiver Life Hacks CLL Edition. I'm Alora Nanos. Thanks for joining us. That's all for now. If you like this show, be sure to subscribe, leave a review, follow us on social, and tell all your friends to listen. Tell us your caregiver life hack in your own voice by leaving a message for us at 855-AUDIO-66, and we might just use it in a future show. Caregiver Life Hacks is a product of Offscript Health. We are a healthcare engagement company built for patients and caregivers by patients and caregivers. Our executive producers are Matthew Zachary and Andrew McDowell. Our senior producers are Joey Brenneman and Ariel Nachman. Our host is Alura Nanos. Caregiver Life Hacks is recorded by Ariel Nachman, mixed and edited by Kyle Moore, and written by Joey Brenneman. For advertising and media inquiries, email media at offscriptnot.com. That's media at offscript.com. For more information, visit offscript.com. <laughs>